0: 39. And Darren Swanson is going to be preaching to us today He's an MC leader at our church All around great guy, love him uh, So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 39 It's in page 467 of that black pew Bible in front of you uh, If you're physically able, go ahead and stand with me as we read I'll read, don't follow along And then I will pray and invite Darren on up Psalm 39, to the choir master, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. When I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace and my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and no more. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this song. Uh, There are parts that sound difficult. uh, There are parts that sound um, sad. But, God, this is your word to us. You uh, have it here for our good. God, I pray for Darren as he comes up soon. Um, pray that you would give him strength, give him energy. Uh, I pray that you would already have been working by Your spirit through his study, through his writing. Uh, I pray now for our congregation uh, that we would be attentive, that we would... Um, just not be uh, distracted by uh, the things, all the things that we have on our plates. God, would you calm us, would you calm our minds and our hearts. And then when we leave today, um, not just having heard a good sermon, um, but having been changed by our words and by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
1: We you say, hey, my name is Darren, I was an intern, I'm married, and I had a really hard week. <laughs> and you know, the thing is, not much has really changed. Um, I am still married, and I do have a daughter, which I forget to mention uh, quite a bit. Um, my wife is a nurse. I was an intern here. So anyways, um, I'm thankful for that. My wife, Becca, told me maybe I should uh, start off by saying an interesting fact about myself. I don't really have many. Um, I guess, the one is that I, I uh, lived in Germany for a year growing up, so that's kind of interesting. But other than that, I don't really have much of an intro. I just kind of want to just jump right in. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Aaron, for praying for me. Um, we're in Psalm 39, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and keep that up, when we're going to be in there. Uh, and you should see the text um, actually behind me um, up on the board the back here. So, um, we are confronted with a very heavy topic uh, this morning. There's no two ways um, about it. You know, I've asked this question before um, when preaching, and I want to ask it again, which is, why are you here? Why are you here this morning? C.S. Lewis once said that if you're ultimately looking for comfort in life, you'll end up miserable. But if you're ultimately looking for truth, you may end up actually being comforted. And I think he's right. Um, As we wrestle with God's word, I want to keep Lewis's axiom, you might say, in mind because while I care about how we feel, I mostly care about that we know what's true that we know what's at stake, that we know what life is about. As we look into Psalm 39, it is this collaborative effort between David and his choir master, Jeduthun, a really interesting name. Uh, this psalm seems to be written from the perspective of a more reflective, an older, a wiser David. It's multifaceted in nature, it's a lament, um, it's a song. But it's also wisdom literature. The best way that I can think of describing this is that it's an autobiographical prayer of lament. An autobiographical prayer of lament. And though the context here might seem confusing at first glance, it's really quite simple. David is dealing with some kind of suffering. We're not really sure what kind of it is. But he's dealing with some kind of suffering while he's also surrounded by those who are opposed to God. And the main point of the text this morning is that David, while under God's discipline, lamented how fleeting his life was. And he cries out to be saved from sin. If you look carefully here, David's suffering was so troubling. His frustration with those he describes as wicked was so significant that he was driven towards prayer. Yet he prayed something really counterintuitive. David prays to be shown and to comprehend the brevity of his life. He's not necessarily praying for blessings. He's praying to know the brevity of his life. And I think he prays this because he wants to gain wisdom and protection from actually wasting his life. In a profound way, suffering was for David and ought to be for us a reminder of how fleeting our life is And it's through God's fatherly discipline that we come to see that nothing in this life will last. Not our health, not our wealth, not our prestige. Only God. But as you might expect, getting to the place where you and I pray in the way that David prayed is not easy. So by God's grace, get God. David, he gives us, he gives us some some of his experiences. And I want to draw three lessons from from Psalm 39 this morning. First, we notice how to deal with the brevity of life. Secondly, we notice what it looks like to truly accept the brevity of life. And the last thing we notice in this passage is, uh, are the reasons for the brevity of life. How to deal with it. Secondly, learn what it looks like to accept it. Thirdly, we see the reasons for the brevity of life. There's lots of ways you can slice this passage up, but this is how I think it's best to do it this morning. So let's go ahead and dive into this. The first thing we learn in Psalm 39, how to deal with the brevity of life. Verses 1 through 4, and then you also get this in verse 12. Um, Verses 1 through 4, verse 12, show us how David dealt with brevity, the brevity of life, and the suffering that he has in life. We see here that he first washed his words. He washed his mouth, as you might say. And secondly, he goes to God in prayer. I'll read it for us here. in Verse 1, it says that, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. And then we see David's appeal to God at the start of verse 4 when David calls out to the Lord, saying, "Oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Commentators note that David was surrounded by unbelievers who were prospering while he suffered. David is frustrated by this fact. Because it seems like those who followed God suffered so much while those who were ungodly prosper. If you're anything like me, it is incredibly easy to get jealous and frustrated when we go so long living for God, obeying God, following God, and then we just suffer most of our lives. Die soon, unexpectedly. It's very tempting in those moments to vent. To complain, to get bitter, but not David, right? He has this two fold strategy. His first move, according to verse 1, is to wash his mouth. He muzzles his mouth. He shuts himself up. David knows that if he complains, especially around unbelievers, it can make people think that God was unfair and mean. But that's exactly what David wanted to avoid out of respect for God. David didn't speak because he didn't want to ruin his witness before others. And David didn't speak because he didn't want to ruin his relationship with God. He didn't speak because he didn't want to ruin his witness before others. And he didn't speak because he didn't want to ruin his relationship with God. But another reason complaining wasn't an option for David was because through some kind of obvious means or by God's divine revelation of some sort, David understood clearly that the suffering in his life was because of his own fault. It was his own sin. It was his own foolishness. It's his own mistakes. It's not because God is unjust or random in his ways. In this instance, his suffering was the result of God disciplining him for the sin in his life. And we get this from verses 8 through 10. David says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Don't make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I don't open my mouth. Why? Because it's you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. So, David's first strategy is to simply watch his words, to watch his mouth. But the other way he deals with the suffering the brevity of his life is by prayer. This is seen in verses 2 and 3, and also the the first part of verse 12. Um, There is something profoundly biblical about prayer and meditation, right? Sitting in silence before God. But that can only last for so long. You see, David says that his his heart his passions his his his, his entire being became hot within him have you ever felt so frustrated and confused with god that your heart became hot i've i've been there before david's emotions get a hold of him but he in his wisdom he goes upwards to God in prayer. And so when he's confronted with the brevity of life and his own suffering, his own sin, he, he deals with it by watching his words. But then he goes to God in prayer. right? That, that's his strategy. He watches his mouth and he goes to God in prayer. And, you know, before I move on to this, I, I, I want to spend just a moment saying something and making this hopefully as clear as possible. But... This is very different than the way we act, right? In the name of of authenticity, we share our struggles with random people on the internet, on Facebook, right? Some of us put more prayers and scripture verses on Facebook and Instagram than we do in our own prayer journal, right? Like, Like Facebook is not meant to be a prayer journal. You should go to God first when you struggle. In the name of being an open book we have conversations with and confide in co-workers who don't know jesus and we act surprised when we get bad counsel brothers and sisters there's nothing wrong something wrong with being honest with people right but every doubt of misconception someone has about christianity has come from somewhere And the truth is that how you wrestle with sin and doubt has a profound impact on how other people see God. So you have to keep this in mind. Don't go outward with your complaints first. Go upward with God in communion with Him. Now, before I move on, there are two sides to every coin, right? Because some people are the opposite of an open book. They're a closed book, right? Meaning they don't tell anybody about nothing we go to MC for a year or two years and nobody knows your story nobody knows your background and it's not because nobody has asked it's because you don't tell nobody anything so keep in mind that this prayer is a communal lament it's a communal song David no doubt is going to go to his brothers and talk about what he's dealing with they're singing this song before the congregation right there are two sides to every coin so this applies to you, then it applies to you. What I just said about needing to be an open book that applies to you, then that applies to you. Okay? Keep that in mind. But let me move on real quick here. We see here that there's a certain kind of doubt and spiritual trouble so deep and intense that you have to go to God first. This is what David's doing, right? This is how he deals with his suffering. But the second thing I want us to see this morning is how David comes to accept the brevity of life. This is related to the first point, no doubt. But there's a nuance here. And this is where I want to spend most of my time on the second point here. Accepting the brevity of life. This is found in verses 4 through 6. And then it's, it's, it's touched on a little bit in verse 11. Here's where we come to the heart of David's prayer. In these verses we see David praying, right? And then he receives from God insight about the human condition. When confronted with suffering, David doesn't want to deny the reality of life. No, he, he wants to know and comprehend reality. He asks to know the nature of life in verse 4. And then by verse 5, he's getting an answer. And he's given an answer that is all too obvious, but all too ignored. Our lives are fleeting. Your life is fleeting. My life is fleeting. Our lives are a few short handbrikes, a shadow for God. Our lives are as nothing. Look with me at verses four through six. David says, "O oh Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, all mankind stands as a mere breath, sailor." Surely, a man goes about as a shadow. Surely, for nothing, they are in turmoil. man keeps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. David is trying to use every word he can think of to illustrate the fact that everyone will very shortly die and pass away. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is one of the most obvious facts of life. It's not a matter of if, but when. These verses remind us that life is short and frail. It seems like yesterday I just met my best friend, Venga. I've known him longer than anybody in this room. Um, Yeah, it was eight years ago. Um. It seems like it was only two years ago that Becca and I got married. And earlier this month, we celebrated six years of marriage. On the one hand, yeah, yeah. Right. And you know, on the one hand, I can hardly remember, not remember knowing her, right? Um, well, on the other hand, I can still remember the first time we went out, walk on the MKT trail. Um, you know, see, the other day I met the Larson, right? Hadley. I, I used to look down at him. Now he looks down at me. And now I actually have to play defense when we're playing basketball. Because if not, he will shoot the lights out. Um, and it seems like it was just, a, you know, yesterday that my daughter was born. And now she walks, and talks, asks me how my day was. Um, and it, in just a few moments from now, she'll be asking me for help filling out a job Just a few moments ago, I was in elementary school running around the playground with my brother and sister. Tomorrow, I won't be able to run. I'll limp. I'll move slowly. And then I'll be gone. Every one of us in here will die. I'm talking to you in middle school. I'm talking to you in college. I'm talking to you, 60, 70-year-old. Every time you step outside and you see your breath, right, you're getting an illustration from the God of the universe about the brevity of your life. And I'm sorry to say this, but if you live long enough, every one of us will grow up to see our parents die. Many of us will see our spouses die. These things are sad and tragic, and it's not like I really get a lot of joy of saying this. I'd much rather not. But I, I care more about the truth and that you comprehend it more than anything else. it's not just that life is short, according to the psalmist, but achievement in life is pointless. We see this in verse 6. This is what David means when he says that for nothing we're in turmoil, and we heap up wealth, and we don't know who will gather it, right? If the first bit was too much to handle, this certainly is. The fact of the matter is that apart from God, our lives have no meaning, and certainly they have no objective value. And as a quick aside, this is particularly problematic for those who think they don't need God to have meaning. But the fact is that you can't get meaning within an atheistic worldview. The, the parents of atheism, materialism, naturalism, they say you came from nothing and are going to nothing, yet somehow we're to believe that between nothing and nothing, there's something called meaning. But according to this worldview, we all got here by the strong, eating the weak, and it's just a matter of chance and survival of the fittest. There's no way life has meaning on these terms. The other day, I saw a fox casually stroll into my backyard with a dead squirrel in its mouth, bury it in the ground. Um, until then, I actually almost forgot that foxes weren't just like these cute, cuddly little children's book characters. They're actually predators, right? Um, I remember feeling shocked the first time I found out that when sharks want to mate, they actually force themselves onto each other. Um... Yeah, but no one would ever call the fox's behavior or the shark's behavior immoral, right? Because they're just animals. And if at best, we're just animals, right? And and at worst, we're just bags of meat and bones. Then what's wrong with us killing and taking advantage of other people? What's wrong with us taking advantage of other people sexually? It it doesn't mean anything. It's just what we do. The problem is, is that no one lives as if that were okay we live as if those actions actually have meaning we live as if those things were truly wrong as if we had moral obligations and only god makes sense of them but more to the psalmist's point in verse six the psalmist is emphasizing the powerlessness of man to make any long-lasting and meaningful impact he says that we are like a shadow and you know what shadows do nothing shadows are actually nothing they're just the absence of something. Life. They're nothing. That's us. That's your achievement. That's my resume. I'm sorry to say it. Nothing. Nothing. So the psalmist, he focuses on the accumulation of wealth and prestige. said says it's pointless because we don't know what's going to happen to our accolades. And then we're all going to die. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but everyone you ever met or or who has ever known you will one day die and you will not be remembered. I mean, it's not something Oprah would say, but I'll say it. Um, You and I in this life will only be a memory. And even if you have some long-lasting impact on the world, one day – we don't all kill each other off, or the sun doesn't explode, or, you know, the earth cave in, will never be remembered, ever. The world is gonna grow cold and dark back into nothingness, right? It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how accomplished you are. It doesn't matter how good looking you, you are. Nothing nothing. Yet there's a myriad of ways we all try to deal with this, right? And really there's two I just want to touch on for a moment here. And and really most of them are unhealthy. A lot of them are actually self-destructive. One way we can deal with this is by thrill-seeking. Right? We just go on lavish vacations Some people spend a whole lot of money. Some people jump from spouse to spouse. Some people, most of us really, just try to live life with as few um, inconveniences as possible. Right? And and the paradox or the irony in that is that, like, that doesn't make anybody happy. Right? Um, Life has no meaning. Therefore, I'm going to, in this life, find as much happiness and joy as I can because I'm going to lose it all that's one approach right? and, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't work I've never met anybody who's truly happy who does that another way that we try to deal with this fact is just despair and maybe this is the most self-destructive at all some people just totally give up um, or you just go through life incredibly bitter right? Um, you never smile, you never tell jokes Um, You don't really have many friends because nobody really wants to be around you. You're always angry at everybody else who happens to somehow find a little bit of joy. Um, Christians, you know, these are the Christians that don't tell jokes. Um, They don't go out. That kind of thing. And even though these approaches are kind of different, they all produce something similar. At best, a short moment of happiness. And at worst, a deep-seated contentment, fear, joylessness. It doesn't work. But David doesn't end the psalm here. As he moves to the last portion of the psalm, verses 7 through 13, he gives us reasons why life is so short. And what to do once you've accepted it. Number three here, we see the reasons for the bread of life. Verses seven through 13 shows the reasons for the bread of life. Mm. There are two. There are two reasons that David gives. The fundamental reason why life is so short and why our lives are so fleeting is because God, in a sense, is disciplining us. He's disciplining us. His discipline of us is meant to make us put our hope, that's verse 7, in God alone. Take a look at the text, verses 8 through 11 specifically. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Don't make me the scorn of a fool. I'm used. I don't open in my mouth for it is you who have done it. So catch this in verse 10, right, in verse 11. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man for rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. So it, it's, it's clear from this, this verse, at least, right, that God is causing or, or allowing Dave to suffer as a way of disciplining him for the sin in his life. I've already mentioned that before. Um, but, but verse 7, verse 11, excuse me, verse 11 says that when God disciplines someone for the sin, he... he he slowly, subtly consumes what's dear to them. God eats away, through suffering, the things that we build our lives on. Which are most often, right, the things of this world, if we're honest. This can be health, beauty, relationships. If we're honest, it's very easy to question, my God, needs it's like... Like, here we are with all these desires, man, and you know, we want to have beauty without end, we want everlasting love, unfading strength, never ending joy, only for God to take them away when we die after living a miserable life. But here's the catch desiring those things, joy without end, beauty without end, glory, right? That's not what's vain. It's this temporary dwelling. It's this existence and the fact that we've tried to have our desires fulfilled or found or met in this existence. That's, that's the vanity. You have to be careful there. God never disciplines us with the intention of, of having us to get rid of those desires. That's, that's not it. But it's through his discipline he takes away the things that we've wrongly put our desires in. You see, there, there was a time when mankind aged and got older, yet never grew closer to death. You see, when God made us, he made us for himself, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And we found our true home in God's presence, in the garden, without sin. This is why Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity on man's in man's heart. But Adam failed to guard his ways. He didn't muzzle his mouth. He conversed with Satan. Right? He questioned God's goodness. Mm-hmm. All of humanity was plunged into sin. And so now you and I're we're, we're, we're cut off from, from God's goodness and all of humanity it is, is, is longing. We're homeless. We're sick. We eventually die. Because God's just discipline and punishment on mankind's sin is death. And now our sin causes us to live in foolish ways. You know what? We boast about tomorrow. We waste our own time. We waste our own lives. We waste other people's lives. And that's the fundamental reason why life is so short. And why we suffer. It's because we're under a curse. But God is specifically for those of us who are believers. He's he's trying discipline us so that we see what and where our hopes are. But secondly, God disciplines us with the intention that we, just like David in verses 7 and 12, that we cry out to him, that that we put our hope in him. Most of us, unlike David, cringe. We cringe. We complain about God's discipline. But David can't do that. At least not in any simple kind of way, because he recognizes what he deserves. And you know what? He wants more than anything to be delivered from his sin and put back into God's presence. That's what he's longing for. And here's the interesting thing about how this song ends. David's plea ends in a cliffhanger. Look, look at the scripture before you. Just take a glance at it. Into the cliffhanger. There's no hint that God answers him in this psalm. Despite how emotional, how expressive, how heartfelt David is in prayer and lament, there's there's no hint at that. David knows God's there and wants to trust him, but because of the sin, he feels like he doesn't have the sort of intimate, familial relationship that he needs. David knows he's with God, but he doesn't feel like it. He feels more like a sojourner. He feels more like a guest rather than a son. The psalm ends with him, begging God to look away from him and take away the discipline so that he could have joy in life. Have you ever felt this way in prayer? I submit to you this morning, if you haven't, then you haven't been on your knees long enough. Have you ever called out to God and felt like He heard you, but He didn't listen to you? Have you ever cried out to God but felt like He just kind of let you cry? Has God ever disciplined you so badly that it made you feel like your life was over? Maybe you're here this morning and you've lost work because you've done some really stupid things. Maybe you're here and you destroy your marriage and and, and it feels like God is done with you. Maybe you're here and you feel that God has stripped everything from you because you keep going back to addiction, to drugs, to sin. Maybe you're here and at the end of the day it just feels like the lesson and the discipline that God is trying to show you is just too much. It's too heavy. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that there is good news. There's good news. The good news is that there is a greater David who sympathizes with our weakness. Amen. There's a greater David who was in the presence of the wicked and kept his mouth shut. Even though he suffered, he became the scorn of the fool. I'm here to tell you that there's a greater David who was born in this world but unstained by the things of it. I'm here to tell you that there's a greater David who was disciplined by God, not because he had sinned, but because he was dealing with our sin, saving sinners. There's a greater David who was forsaken by God so that we would become children of God. There's a greater David who stepped down from eternity... And immortality to bring us to eternity. And that there is Jesus, that there is Jesus. And it's this Jesus who says, if you give him your short, your short temporary, fleeting life, he's gonna give you eternity. That is awesome. That he says, Look, you got about 70, 75 years, right? Maybe. But if you just give me that, I'll give you eternity. You'll never die. You'll live forever. Just give me that fleeting short life of yours. That's the good news. And you know what? He just doesn't die for us, He redeems your life, He redeems your time. So that way, every moment of your life, Is infused with divine meaning and significance. None of it's pointless. None of it's pointless. None of it has to be wasted. And it's this Jesus who says, though you die, you won't perish, but you'll live forever. It's this Jesus who died, but was raised so that we too would be raised from the grave. Because of Christ, we're God's children, and He hears. He listens to our prayers. And you know what? Because of Jesus, we can be confident that God's discipline of us is actually measured. I don't know if you knew this, but believers never, ever suffer in direct proportion to our sin. Not only because if we did, we would have died a long time ago. but also because if we did, Jesus' death and resurrection would be pointless. And it's because of Christ that we can accept the brevity of life and put our hope in God alone because He has never, He won't ever leave us. He won't ever forsake us. This is good news. What have we seen so far? As I get ready to... For a graph up here. We've seen how to deal with the brevity of life. Go to God in prayer. We've seen what it means to accept the brevity of life. And thirdly, we've seen the reasons for the brevity of life, namely so that that we learn to put our hope in God alone, right? Because it's God alone who lasts. And so there are two implications I want to draw from this. One is very direct, right? One is that we live a life of repentance and confession. Um, This is a direct implication of this passage because David here, he's admitting his sin. Um, He's asking God to save him from his sin, he's asking him to make things right again. He's seeking repentance. Um, Cars, this is something that we should be doing regularly. If not, there is something spiritually um, unhealthy. There's no other way to say it. There's something spiritually unhealthy going on if we're not regularly seeking repentance. And so before we take communion, like, you I know, mean, it might feel a little awkward, but I'm gonna take a few minutes. I don't want to rush communion. I don't want it to take too long, but I want us to just sit, you know, for a few moments, like give yourself time to confess before God, for your neighbor. Um, that's what David is doing here, right? So that's just one implication. Live a life of repentance and confession. But the second one is, is probably more indirect. Um, which is that I think we should make the best use of time. I think that's an implication of this passage. Um, I don't have the time to read all of it, but uh, maybe you could write this down if you're taking notes. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. In those verses, Paul says that before you and I even existed, God had predestined. God had predestined us and set aside good and meaningful works for us to do throughout our lives. God wants us to make the best use of our time because there's a lot of evil, and our time is short. The key to this is looking to the life of Christ. Jesus was the most disciplined guy and used time better than anybody else. Um, yet, he rested, he sang songs, he worked a normal job for almost his entire life, um, yet he was so accomplished. And the key to Jesus making the best use of time wasn't fretting, um, it wasn't trying to master time with what little time he had, but rather he realized who the master of time is God himself. Jesus was disciplined in that he was taught by God and knew that the Father orchestrated every moment and event in his life. And Jesus didn't need to fret. For Jesus, everything he got done was exactly what God wanted him to get done. And he never freaked out over it. And so live a life Repentance and confession. And then make the best use of time. Um, as, a, as we close this morning, I want to end with a quote from the missionary, uh, Jim Elliott. He's known to have once said, um, you know, kind of when he's meditating on the gospel, he just writes this down in his journal somewhere. He says, uh, and it should be on the board here. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain that which he can't lose. Do you know this? Do you know your life is fleeting and you can't hold on to it? Have you given it to Christ? Has he redeemed your time and your life? Have you gone to him in prayer? He knows you. He's acquainted with your weakness. He was disciplined with you. Put your hope in him because nothing else will pass last again to you. I want to invite the Dan up um, as we take communion here. I'm going to pray for us. So would you please bow your head and close your eyes with me. Um, and then we'll move into a time of communion. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, there's so much um, emotion and sadness and sorrow wrapped up in, in a passage like this. Um, you know, I just really want our people to understand the reality. Of it. There's some things in life that you you can't really be told. You can only learn through experience. Yet there's, there's something that will last, your word, your, your word, your word in this gospel. Jesus, we thank you for dying for us and bringing us back to God and giving us eternity, which we so desperately cling on to and desire. Um, would you help us to go away this morning um, having wrestled with this fact? When we have a keen awareness of God's discipline uh, for us, towards us in life, knowing that he is a father uh, and he is drawing us back to himself, wanting us to repent. Uh, This is not easy, God, but by your spirit we